Every journey begins with a single step. For many, the first step is the greatest challenge. Yet for all, the obstacles, the doubt, and conviction teach us about ourselves. It's these moments in life, a test of our abilities, our mind, when we don't know, but we still proceed. Driven by the unspoken, but ignited by the obsession that yields some of life's greatest lessons and rewards. Join me as we explore incredible stories of leaders forging industries, enterprises, and ultimately, themselves. I'm your host, Adam Geary, and welcome to Capital Class. Let's begin. Classmates, welcome to today's show. As you know, we often explore the journey of an enterprise, the grit, the challenge, the success and struggle of building. Today's episode, we turn to the founding cornerstone of our global society, the educator. If you're like me, when you were a student, your teacher was a permanent fixture in your life, somewhat object permanence. They lived in their classroom ready for you to return. In my case, as the son of a teacher, she also lived in my home. Yet when I stepped foot in a teacher's lounge as a young educator 13 years ago, a dynamic was brewing. The pride of education was under attack from financial opportunities, and in my siloed opinion, a lack of recognition and understanding for the challenge of being an educator. The pejorative phrase, those who can't teach, is seriously spoken naively. As professional degrees in the field of education decline and turnover reaches 24 to 53%, depending on the school, your local principal and parent find themselves asking, who's teaching this year? On today's episode of Capital Class, we are joined by Evan Erdberg, champion of teachers and founder and CEO of Proximity Learning, connecting students with certified educators across the nation. Evan, Welcome to Capital Class. It's a pleasure to be here, Adam. Thanks for having me. You know, this episode is special to me. Right? As a family of teachers, I find myself wondering about the future of the educator. From 2007 to 2009, my mornings consisted of driving to a middle school, throwing on a lanyard, uh, and spending you know, my days with 120 to 140 kids. And... I feel like that's the the desire, the 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 field as a profession is changing, uh, but maybe not maybe not all for the worse, right? And so I start with today, like, what's what's the bullish case in your view for the this case of the teacher, right? Like, what's going on that excites you? What what are you seeing that's that's a that's a positive? I think the well documented negatives are out there. Yeah, I mean, you said it really well in the beginning when it comes to respect is the profession has lost the respect of the population, which is really, you know, not fair to these teachers that are working every day with the students that need them. Um, the positives are one, you know, we are investing more than we've ever invested before in education, whether it comes to technology or people themselves. Uh, states are raising minimum wages. They're raising the salaries to at least a, a minimum level, livable wage of $60,000. When you think of $60,000, that's $30 an hour. 
That's what it comes down to, right? And if you go to a lot of states, the starting salary is $39,000. You know, that's about $20 an hour. So we're seeing a lot of states raising their, um, you know, minimum pay, which is great. We are bringing a lot of new technologies into education to really empower teachers to do more with less and to spend more time with their students. And we do have a lot of states that are investing also in new types of curriculum and new types of assessments and that might not be as intrusive as, you know, the current state tests that are coming through the window. But uh, we are far, far away from saying that we have turnaround education. Uh, we are still in a place of, um, you know, where education is not respected, where we don't have access to teachers, where, you know, people do say that phrase, if you can't do teach, it's, it's a place where we need to turn it around. So we are, we are not where we need to be yet, but there, of course, are a lot of positive things going on in education, a lot of people dedicating their lives to it regardless of the pay. So it's, it's really the people that makes education wonderful right now. I, I see you on LinkedIn, right? And you write passionately about the educator. And like you're unabashed about your worldview, about how important these people are to children, society, America, economy, right? Like the, the foundational blocks of, of our lives. And you mentioned something off air a while ago. We don't have a teacher shortage problem. Can you expound a little bit on that? It's, it is true. It's, we, we don't have a teacher shortage problem. We have a shortage of teachers willing to work. Um, you know, there's over 10 million teachers right now certified out there not working in education today. Um, that could be in education. Um, when you think about it, a teacher comes out of college with a lot of ideas. A teacher knows what they're going to make, too. People don't go to college saying, I'm going to get wealthy and become a teacher. I went to college to be an educator, so I, I know exactly what you're talking about. You weren't like, I'm going to I'm gonna begin myself a Bentley, a Ferrari. <laughs> I'm coming out as a teacher. It's going to be wonderful. You know, there's all these rap songs about teachers making money. You know, that's, that's not real. Why does someone go to become a teacher? It's because the love of students, the ability to help people become better. And these are amazing people because they're going in there wanting to change the world and know that they're not going to get paid a lot to do it. They're doing it because of their core values. And they are able to keep these core values through college. They come out of college ready to change the world. Then they go to a school district. And a school district, what do they do with these young people that want to change the world? They tend to put them into the worst classes. They also say, you know what? You know, all those methods that you were taught on how to really instruct students, you can't use any of them. We're giving you a scripted lesson where you actually have to follow the script on what you say every single day and you can't go off of it. Or um, let's say a teacher is being innovative and doing good things in the classroom. You'll then have the teacher union come to them and say, you're making everyone else look bad. You have to stop. And so these teachers are being beaten down everywhere. And so when you're now going in your second year, your third year, and the teacher union is telling you not to do a good job, you have the school district not supporting you. Then you have parents coming in. And I, it's funny, I saw this cartoon. 
um, probably about a month ago. And I used it in one of my company presentations. And it said in 1960, it had a picture of the parents uh, scolding the student in, with the teacher. Like, why aren't you passing? It was the parents scolding the student, right? Saying, why are you not passing? Why aren't you doing your homework, right? And the next picture, it has 2023. It has the parents scolding the teacher saying, why isn't my student doing well? Why isn't my student doing the homework? And it has the student sitting there smiling, um, watching this happen, right? It's we've moved um, as parents from looking at our children and saying, you know what? Maybe they are the problem. Maybe they need some additional help. Maybe I need to take them out and work with them to it's the teacher. It's the teacher. And then you add the SEL component onto it post-COVID where kids were kept out of school for two and three years. So they don't even know how to act in school. They don't even know how to socialize in school. And the teacher's having to deal with those issues right now. Put all that together and then they get offers for from corporate America for 50, 60, 70,000 to do other jobs where they don't have all these problems. What Where are they going to go? They're leaving, right? They're leaving in droves. Um, we've We've never seen an environment where so many teachers have non-renewed their contracts. There's never been a time and place in the history of America where districts are seeing 5 to 10% of their teachers not returning. That has never happened before. It's usually 1% at most. And so we're in a really unique situation today where our student population is actually growing. And our teacher... Um, profession is shrinking. And so what are we going to do about that? Because who do you think is going to get the best teachers? You know, it's not the kids that need them. It's going to be the kids that have the parents advocating for them every day with the PTAs, at the principal's office, at the superintendent's office. Um, they're the ones that are getting all the teachers because, again, teachers now have choice. And so the inequity is really, and really the problem here. I guess, can we push in here, like, a district is charged with educating their kids, right? And they are like the punching bag for a lot of what we hear. Like it's a district problem. And I'm certainly not here to challenge you on what you do every single day, but like what, why would a district place these students, essentially new teachers or basically students, right? Of the, of the profession in those environments. Like, is it, is that a necessity? I mean, what's, I just I just struggle with the idea that that districts don't want them to succeed, and I hear that often. I, I don't believe that districts don't want them to succeed, um, but when you look at the situation, I mean, I, I've gone to schools where they have six hundred students every period in the auditorium. That's it, in the auditorium. They're not learning; they're just saying they're being babysat because they don't have teachers. It's it's because this. This teacher shortage problem isn't new. It's not because of COVID. You know, COVID threw lighter fluid on the situation. Our teacher shortage problem has been going on for 10 years. And so the education system has just gotten conditioned. They've just gotten used to not having the teacher and doing what they can. Um, maybe it's an asynchronous class where it's just click, click, learn, where, you know, the majority of students fail it anyway. Um, there's just no other option. Right. I mean, if you're a school like there's schools in Odessa, Texas, where 90 percent of the teachers are subs, 90 percent. Right. What what option does that principal have? 
And so I don't believe they don't want these kids to be educated. I feel like they've just run out of options. And again, that's where proximity learning has come in. But it's it's the ability to get options and through three think creatively, right? Growth growth mindset. Um and in education, then that's not always celebrated. You know, the what's celebrated is staying status quo and not causing a lot of problems. Um being innovative, being unique, having the growth mindset is sometimes looked upon as not the right way to, you know, change things in education. Education hasn't changed in what, 150 years? Maybe 200 years? Now, if you were to bring somebody from, you know, 200 years back today, they'd be amazed at how we drive, how we communicate, how we dress, how we eat, um, how we look. But you bring that same person into a school and they'd walk in and see all this new technology. Everything's different. We walk into a school and you still got 30 kids in desks um, looking at, well, it's not a blackboard anymore. It's now a whiteboard. (laughs) And the teacher's drawing on it, and they'd be completely confused because the kids still have textbooks. It's still Sage on stage. It's still the factory worker model. Nothing has changed in over 200 years. And so I think it's time for education to get a facelift and look at itself and say, you know what? We can't keep going down the path we're going because our needs are different. We don't have access to the same teachers. The product, which is the students, is again not not coming out successful it's i don't know if you read one of my posts uh last week where i talked about um how each school gets a certain amount of money per student and uh and no other industry you know does so little or such a small amount of the money they get for the product go towards the product itself i think it was only like um I think it was 10% of the money goes towards the product and 90% goes towards things that are not related to the product in a school budget. Um, why? I mean, we should be focusing on the product, which is the student's education. And we're not. And uh, and schools have just been conditioned. It's You do the same thing over and over again or you don't have a result. People just get used to what, what the status quo is. And so what would an alternative look like? I mean, part of the challenge you're mentioning earlier is that there's this, it's like this spiral downward, not enough educators to fulfill the student need. Therefore, quality goes down. Options to educate those kids become fewer, right? And I'm just, you're in this, right? This, I mean, these are not easy answers, but you see it every day. And there must be pockets of innovation that you've walked in and say, well, you know, this is something unique. This is something different. There's been a lot of very like cool and innovative schools where they're, they, most of them, unfortunately, have been, you know, either charters or schools that have been allowed to, you know, work outside of the teacher union where they're able to innovate, where it's maybe not 30 kids in the classroom. Maybe it's more like a college style. Um, where if it's a science class, they're implementing, you know, a lab, but maybe they're going out and working with industry on it and making it more dynamic. And, you know, I, I don't think that we need to have classrooms. Like, I think we need to really allow students to drive their education more. I don't know if you ever looked at or had children like in mine go to like Montessori schools and 
you know, the, the student drives their education and the teacher's the guide, right? And they guide them the right way, but it's really student-driven and they get to really explore everything and they get to learn about nature and numbers and reading, but in a different way because it's student-driven. And then they're excited about it um, as opposed to standardized testing. And you need to te- need to learn this at this time. I think we really need to remove those handcuffs on what is expected when it comes to standardized tests. Take the test away and focus more on bringing the love of education. Because if we do that, teachers are going to stay and they're going to come back. And that's really the key is we need to, to we need to show teachers that we respect them as professionals. Um, like what they do, like if you look in Finland or Korea or Poland, where you have some of the best education systems, they have one thing in common. They treat the teacher as a professional. That's the one thing that we don't do here is we don't trust our teachers. There they trust their teachers. A teacher can hug a kid if that kid's crying. A teacher, you know, has the ability to craft their own lessons. Now those students have to achieve at the end of the year but it's up to the teacher to get them there, right? And so they're able to be creative and the society trusts that that teacher will guide the students to where they need to go. And they end up doing that, right? Is if you treat someone like a professional, they're gonna enjoy their job and they're gonna stay. And that's the key is until we get robots that could teach, <laughs> we, we need to really focus in on bringing people back into teaching. And we need to do that by creating an environment that people want to be in, a culture that they want to be in, right? Trust needs to be given. We we should be giving teachers the same trust and the same respect that we give people that are in the military in America. Um, they serve too. Our teachers are serving. They're the front line. Like when someone, when someone tells you that they're in the military, you say, thank you for your service. Every time. Right? Right? Of course. They deserve it. They allow us to have the freedoms that we get today. But when it's someone who's a teacher says, I'm a teacher, you say, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, I don't, you okay? but I get you. I hear what you're saying. Right? You should be saying to them, too, thank you for your service. Yeah. Every day you're on the front line with our students, with our kids. Do you still hear the passion for education when you're in those buildings? Yeah, there's – even though a lot of the passion definitely been beaten out of these people – they are still, the people that have stayed are still so passionate. They want to do what's right. They want to help these kids. They're there because they are fighting the good fight for children. And it's not that they're not doing a good job. It's that a lot of times they just don't know, don't have the resources or they don't have the ability to do what they need to do. But these people are, that are in education are amazing people. And if you do meet someone who's a superintendent or a teacher, you should be saying thank you to them because what they're doing is not an easy job. If you have kids, imagine having 30 of your kids every hour, but different groups. So it's like 180 kids. That's a lot. I have three kids myself and I don't think I could do 30 of them. That would be challenging for me. And they do this every day with 180 kids, you know, six periods of like, they're, like it's unbelievable the patience and the care and the love. And what's funny is our kids actually spend more time with the teacher than they do with us in a, in a day. They're spending eight hours with that teacher. You know, they're spending really maybe four or five hours with us a night um, before they go to bed, right? So it's these people are crafting our young and crafting the future of our country 
And so we got to say thank you to the people that are there. Hey, everyone. It's Adam Geary, host of Capital Class, a venture of the Strategist Podcast Network. If you enjoy our stories of entrepreneurs building their enterprises and ultimately themselves, be sure to check out our other shows hosted by my colleagues as they explore leaders, entrepreneurs, and topics impacting the American education system. To learn more about On Balance, On the Clock, Swimming Upstream, and To the Point, visit strategistgroup.com forward slash insights or visit Spotify, Apple, or any of your favorite podcast platforms. We thank you for listening to Capital Class and hope you enjoy. It's clear that you have a passion and that's likely what led to your profession. You've, you tell a lot about the, the teacher profession and your work at Proximity Learning, but I think there's a story here and it's yours, which is you had a full-time job. You were working in another field and you chose to move here. The business is almost 10 years old. And, you know, take us back to that moment, right? Where you were, you were somewhere and you decided, look, I, I got to get into this field, highly regulated, right? Highly fractured, uh, sales that had to require at a district level, sometimes the state level, you have to change laws. You have uh, unionized labor. I mean, you know, this takes a lot of belief in yourself. It was, it was a challenging decision and a lot of people thought I was crazy. Um, a bunch <laughs> of them work for me now, <laughs> um, but they, especially my peers at work thought I was nuts. Um, I mean, what happened is, is I was working with teacher evaluation, teacher professional development, and we were implementing these big systems across the country. And um, I just kept seeing the trend. We'd go to train, a, you know, 200 people at a high school and there would only be 100. We'd go to train 80 at a middle school and there'd be 60 or 30 at elementary school and there's 10. And so I started to talk with the principals and they let me know that these teachers are not coming, that they haven't had a math teacher in four years. That, I mean, the craziest ones were in Mississippi and in New Mexico, where they're literally building new middle schools and new high schools without science labs. No science labs, because they have not had science teachers there in so long. And wow, I remember four years ago, I was in Roswell, and they were like, do you know how many chemistry teachers graduate in the whole state of New Mexico? How many, how many teachers do you think graduate in the whole state of New Mexico? 50. That'd be a fair number, right? And I was, I said 30, right? They said one. One chemistry teacher that year graduated. And so it really goes to show how does one teacher, when there's a hundred science vacancies across the state, um, make up for it. And so... I started to realize I was in the wrong place. Um, I was trying to make teachers better and build trust between principals and teachers. I realized I need to go a step further and find the teachers. You know, there's no point in making better teachers if you don't have a teacher. And I used to travel like every week. And back then I was really connecting with my team via Skype. 
I mean, talk about a company that missed its heyday. But uh, Skype, and uh, I was like, this this type of instruction works for me, this type of connection. I'm someone that needs to be, I can't really learn on their own. I need a teacher. I need someone to explain to me, um, you know, how to understand that problem. And uh, I was like, if this works for me, why can't we do this? You know, teachers aren't going to move to the Mississippi Delta, you know, from New Jersey. You know, that's just not happening, Right. But they're willing to probably teach from New Jersey and go in remotely. And so I created, you know, a business plan and uh, met with a bunch of friends uh, in Austin. And they agreed to the plan and said, you know what, we'll we'll support your plan, but you need to move to Austin. (laughs) And so I said, I'm down. So I I quit my job um, and uh, I moved from New York City across the country to Texas and to Austin to start the company. Uh, my parents thought I was crazy too. Uh, <laughs> they grew up in Brooklyn. They're like, you're moving where? <laughs> Texas. Texas. I was, they're like, what's in Texas? And so uh, I moved down here and decided to, you know, try it out. And I can say the first three years, I really didn't even get paid a salary. I thought I was, I made the worst decision in my life. Because uh, it was hard work. Because right now, what, what COVID did is COVID normed virtual instruction. It normed it. Absolutely. Right? That's why you're seeing all these REITs getting rocked on office space. Because people aren't going back because they don't have to. Because we got normed on doing meetings via Zoom. Um, before COVID, that was not the norm. Um, you can remember so when before I started, COVID, they did, it was, the question was, is a district one-to-one? Right. It was like, yeah. Hey, do they have devices or not? Are they still on carts? You know, carts, right? Like someone would roll in, they would use those laptops. Now it's, it's, I'm certain there are probably districts that don't have the concentration of devices they want, but the preponderance is if they don't have their own device, it's a BYOD. They have a device. They can get access. Yeah. I mean, before COVID, we went into districts where they still had dial up. Right. So, um, that's where all the funding went. So now everyone has access to high-speed internet and, and computers. But 10 years ago, they didn't. And 10 years ago, learning remote like this was was weird, was not normal, was not norm. People, did, people would tell me my students wouldn't do this. And so I had to, I had to educate a market on what virtual instruction was back then. And they would group us in with like Edgenuity, and K-12 and Apex and Fuel Ed, all those asynchronous companies where it's more self-directed, click, click, learn, where there's no teacher there. Um, and they're like, well, they do a terrible job. Why would we want you? I'm like, no, no. I'm like, they are a curriculum company. I'm like, we are a people company. <laughs> we had to separate from the pack and we had to change and re-educate people on what online education could look like. And so it was an uphill battle. It was, it was an uphill battle for the first by five years where we weren't profitable, where every day could have been our last, where school districts were not paying on time because it's a public system and they could pay 60, 80, 90 days late. And I had to beg, borrow and steal from friends to keep payroll. Um, You know, it was, it was not easy. Like going from a job where, you know, you're getting a paycheck, you know, all you're worrying about is your core function. You're not worrying about HR. You're not worrying about, you know, payroll. You're not worrying about, you know, the legal aspect of a contract. These are all things that as a business founder and owner, you know, you take on everything in a business 
stops with you. I have said this before, you know, marriage, having children, buying a home, you know, these kind of like foundational items that people can relate to. In that same line of thinking, and probably in many ways, in line of maybe being a parent is sign the front of a paycheck, right? Like when you make payroll, these are not just these inanimate items that just show up. They're not widgets, right? They're your people. It's your business. And it becomes a part of you. Especially after five years, right? Five years of building and still trying to make payroll. I mean, you must have had thoughts of packing it up. Yeah, I had... I had a lot of thoughts about packing, <laughs> packing it up. Um, I mean, luckily my wife, um, who I ended up marrying, you know, uh, after my first year of starting the business, she had a good job. Um, and so she was able to give us some stability, but, uh, it was, it was tough because my business was people. It wasn't widgets or, or pro it was people. So, you know, that means my cost of goods was high. And, um, my gross profit was low, which meant, you know, there wasn't money staying in the business. A lot of the money, all the money was flowing out to salaries and to compensation. Um, and there was only so many places that I could cut because it was people is what I was providing into schools. And so it was tough. It wasn't until, you know, we got, we won Chicago as a contract, then Milwaukee public schools that were both million dollar contracts when we were like a million dollar company, right? We were, we were not big. And then all of a sudden we got like contracts that tripled the size of us and got, gave us um, a name. And that was like in the fourth year we got that, but then we had to service it, right? Is that's what people don't understand. When you have a company, you need to have the money to service it. You can't just start it and then say, great, it's a product. It's like, no, they needed, you know, 50 teachers. Well, they pay, net 60 supposed to be 30 but it's usually 60 or 90 after the 30 days so that means i'm having to carry payroll for those 50 people for three months um and, and if they don't pay if they wait another month that's another month of payroll i have to carry right and so those are all the considerations that i had to go through but luckily i had some good supporters you know in the beginning and and people i could turn to and uh, we were able to get past that first year. So after that fourth year, the fifth year, we actually started to be profitable. And I started to, and I was able to get some lines of credit from banks. That was a, that was a win. Is I went to a couple of local banks to get lines of credit and we were able to secure a million dollar line of credit. And that changed the game because now I, I had access to money um, to make payroll and to make capital investments without w waiting for the money to come in. You know, people see you now and they probably say, wow, an incredible business, all the success, right? The growth, they don't, and no one can really know, right? The In the mind of the founder and the entrepreneur, right? The doubt, the concerns, the questions, right? That, that you find yourself facing, right? Even when things are well, you, there can be a mindset of scarcity because you've been somewhere else, right? You've, you've had the alternative. When did it all click for you? When did the momentum begin to carry you? Yeah, I would say, and I still have it. Um, it's called imposter syndrome, right? For leaders. And 
you know, I still have that where there's days where things are, everything is going against you. And I'm just like, why am I in the seat? I shouldn't be here. I should just retire or sell or leave. You know, it's, I, I'm not the one to do this. I uh, like, I had, it was a lot more prevalent, you know, before now, but I still get those days where I'm like, man, this is the worst. Um, but I would say, you know, where it started to click for me was probably um, in year, year five, when I was able to surround myself with, you know, really good team members, um, especially like ops and sales, people to help lead. Um, when I was able to, when you're growing it, everything's on you, right? You're working 20 hour days, everything is on you. And it's very hard to delegate because you think you do it the best way. And so then you work yourself to death because you're working in the business and on the business. And um, you feel like you can never get ahead. And it wasn't until I hired my, you know, director of ops and then, you know, a person to lead sales and then promoted up someone to be in charge of implementation and client success where I actually had partners, right? Instead of just, yeah, they're my employees, but more partners, people I was able to delegate um, a lot of responsibilities to so that I was able to actually step back and breathe for a second and then look back on the business from a macro, macro view and start really planning and actually strategizing for the first time and, and saying, all right, now let's look six months out. Let's look 12 months out. What strategies do we need to make in order to reach our goals? And so any advice I can give to someone is the ability for you to hire an ops or finance or someone for you to offload responsibilities to, that's when you're able to really scale. That's when I was able to now start thinking differently and start scaling the business faster. When you take just broad inventory of progress, not revenue, right? How do you measure it? I mean, for us, success is the amount of students in our programs. Now, it's not like, yes, we have a revenue goal and a profitable go profitability goal, of course, because we have to be profitable to grow. But for us, it's how many students are in our program. So every um, every week we we have a, a 30 minute you know, meeting for the whole company. And, you know, we start the meeting with we have a better team than everybody. We have a better product than everybody. We have more money than everybody um, and our competitors. I mean. When are we going to have a million kids in our program? And then we go over our core values of passion, integrity, and innovation. And then we dive into, you know, how many students are in our program currently. And then all, everything, every, the whole company signs on to that for 30 minutes every week. Um, and it really allows everyone to focus in on what's important, which is the students. And for us, it's success because every student in our program is a student that did not have access to a teacher. Right. They were just sitting there with a sub watching a video or not learning. And so for us, success is we want to get to a million students in our programs because that's at that level. We could actually change communities. Whole communities could change. We could really help stop that cycle of poverty. Um, so there, that's for us is what success is. I'm glad you brought it up because I, we had found this, this very public goal that you share often that would make you the superintendent of the largest school in the world. How, how important is that part of your vision? Um, is that is where I'm headed. I guess you could say that's our BHAG, 
is is to get there. I mean, when I started, we had 300 students. I had 10 teachers, <laughs> you know, nine, 10 years ago, you know, I had three other people in the company. It was, it was a dream. Like back then it was really, can we just, you know, build a company that is profitable? At that point it wasn't. And I was like, can we, can we get to a point where we can educate full districts and take over full schools that are, that have no teachers and, it was a vision, but we never thought we'd get to even where we are today. And now when we look at it today, it's like these students need us. And like there, there is no one coming. Superman isn't coming. Right. There, there is no one coming for these students. And it's not it's not people with means because people with means um, can go to private schools, can pull their kids out, can add tutors. It's these kids that are in the urban and rural communities, right? And have free and reduced lunch where their parents are working three jobs and they don't have time to advocate or they're not there. It's those are the kids that are getting left behind. And, you know, we're, we're fighting for that. And it's a million of those kids that we want our programs because that means they get the chance to, you know, succeed and gain education. I just have to say, like, our mission strategist is to help students thrive in their living, which is healthcare and learning, which is education. A million kids is amazing, man. And I love that that's a North Star for you and that you're using that to motivate your team, to drive decisions. It's very easy to get overemphasized in financial objectives. As a CEO, I can I can understand that. This is this is legacy life, right? This is the things that you'll do that you'll impact these students that will never meet you but you're working on something that is so powerful for those students that it really could make a difference. I hope, you know, that's my hope is that we're able to change the lives of a million people. We're able to help the educators. Like we talked about, they're still there. that still care. They're going home beaten and sad because they realize the students aren't getting access to the teachers. It's to give them a lifeline. Like when we came into a district, New Roswell, New Mexico, I remember like six years ago, they didn't have math teachers for, th for three years in their high school. We came in and we brought math teachers and I came and visited the school, you know, four months later and the principals were at literally tearing, tearing because they were thanking us because every day the parents yelled at them. Every day they knew they were not giving access to an education to their students. And then finally, we were able to give them access to a math teacher. And they felt special. They felt good. And so that also is something that, you know, it made me feel good when I was able to walk in there and, you know, hug the principal and, you know, say you're welcome. Is I was thinking about the teacher. I mean, the, the students. I did not think about the administrators to that point and how we're also affecting these amazing people that are still there, still fighting for students and want the best for students. And they just need a lifeline and we can be that lifeline for them. Incredible. Really? I, we talk a lot about energy, right? We're all trading energy for something here and I treat mine like an asset. How do you recharge? Man, with three kids under seven, it's really hard. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> Um, at work, it's busy, you go home, they're on top of you. Um, but it's, it's funny because I like coming in every day. It's like when I wake up in the morning, I'm not like, oh, I gotta go to work. It's, 
I'm excited. I'm excited to come in. I think a big part of that is the people I hired and are part of our company is we have a great group of people that are all driven towards the same goal. And, you know, you feel the energy. It's like if you've ever been to New York City and you walk on the street, you just feel the energy and it energizes everyone. And it's like getting a shot of coffee is just because of the way that people feel and act as a group. Um, I feel like we've recreated that in our offices. And even with our remote employees, if you get on with them, is everyone is energized. So when you come to work, everyone is happy to be there. Everyone talks positively. We all talk about our, our shared visions and goals. Um, and so it's not it's not a job. It's really a, you know, like a calling. We get to we get to do do you know well by doing good. And that's really what drives me every day right now. And I'm able to wake up, have the energy, go to work, travel, do what I gotta do because we have a mission, we have a vision and, you know, you have a group of people that all believe in it. And I think that's important is if it was me alone, it'd probably be a lot harder, but because I have so many good people around me, it makes it a lot easier. What is it that the, what is it that the outside audience doesn't see about you? Right. I'll, I'll, I'll say in my world that I spend a lot of my time in front, right? I'm the external voice for a lot of things we do, but a lot of that time comes from me actually being in kind of more of a silent state and contemplative state. And I think a lot of CEOs find themselves that that self-evaluation, that analysis kind of brings the greatness out of them and out of their enterprises. Is that true for you? Do you, do you, do you take that time away? I mean, do you, do you golf? Do you, do you find that, that kind of moments to just get that introspection? I used to golf and then I had three kids <laughs> and I used to have hobbies and then I had three kids. Um, so, I mean, for me, you know, I, I do enjoy reading a lot. You know, I, I read at least one book to two books a month. I listen to one to two audiobooks a month. I also have podcasts I listen to. I'm, for me, I believe I, I'm, I always have to learn. I always have to keep the journey of learning and something new and growing and, you know, self-enlightenment. Um, but, you know, I also like mentoring. I have a lot of entrepreneurs in Austin um, that I mentor and I help. Um, I'm on the board of EO Austin, which is an entrepreneurial group. I'm an EO um, guy. I'm helping to drive. Yeah. So I'm helping to drive. Um you know, the community of Austin in another direction towards entrepreneurship. And I, I enjoy being in that community and being around people who have the similar backgrounds or similar drive. And, and together, you know, we're able to talk about, you know, our successes, our failures, um, our, our troubles. And so outside of work, I do spend outside of my family, which I do spend a lot of time with. Um, I do also, you know, spend a lot of time on the entrepreneurial community of Austin. I love it. Yeah, I mean, the, there is a power in EO and the forum. It's uh, it's hard to describe, especially when it's amongst other businesses you have no kind of connection to whatsoever. They don't understand your industry, but that shared growth and the process is is real and it's powerful. It is, and I was president of EO last year, so. Uh, if you put that on top of my responsibility here, 
um, they elected me in and I was like, all right, I'll, I'll do what I can. Um, but it, it's great because, you know, I've, I've really been lucky to be successful and to have and build a team that allows me to be successful, but I want to take the knowledge that I've gained and provide it to other entrepreneurs that are also lighting their own paths and Evan, help them to grow faster than I did. Incredible story today. We get everyone out of here on what we call the fast four, right? So kind of rapid response and the first thing that comes to mind as an entrepreneur, what trends are emerging that interest you? So the trends not going to be any surprise AI. Sure. Um, I would say, um, podcasting. Um, I would say, uh, international staffing really the big one yeah it's big do you see AI disrupting the teaching market i'll say this i don't but i could be wrong yeah i mean we've, we we have over 100 teachers on staff from the philippines right now that that being the international market i guess what i'm asking for on the ai side like do you see a world where the student signs on oh, yeah. works with chat gpt versus an educator yeah, we're already built. We're already implementing an MVP of it right now. We have uh, we have um, our own AI called Proxy the Tutor, and we've already we we brought it out to twenty four classes this summer, and we're going to be rolling it out to all of our students next year, where they're able to you know interact with our AI tutor to ask any type of question, and we've trained the tutor around K twelve. So and then we're trying to up it up where even the tutor could even teach lessons. So that's why AI is so important for us. One place in the world everyone needs to visit. Uh, Positano, Italy. Okay. Greatest area of growth for you in the coming year? Um, I would say the top 100 school districts. All right. And favorite podcast that everyone needs to be listening to? <laughs> We're on it right now, brother. Oh, yeah. Thanks, man. But beyond this show. Uh, but I like uh, how I built this. I love how I built this. Yeah. Great how recommendation. Um, another one, if you're a history buff, um, which has nothing to do with business, but super well done, is History That Doesn't Suck. Wow. Uh, it's from professor Virginia University. He does a phenomenal job of American history. Um, and so I've actually been listening from the beginning of America all the way up to current. He does a great job. So Evan, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for championing educators and really just committing your life to students. I mean, it's, it's an incredible, incredible journey and we wish you well. I appreciate it. And thanks for having me. And, uh, I look forward to uh, seeing you in the near future. Thank you for joining today's episode of capital class. If you're interested in joining our next discussion, subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or any of your favorite podcast platforms. Capital Class is a venture with the Strategus Podcast Network. To view the entire lineup of shows, visit strategusgroup.com. I'm Adam Geary. Class is closed.